Let's open our Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And uh, this morning's message is on the last of the fruits of the Spirit, on self-control. And so we'll look at verses 16 uh, through the end of the chapter, just for the sake of context, as we give thought to the fruit of self-control. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Let's hear now the Word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would reveal your truth, not only through the reading of your word, but also through its preaching. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that, O Lord, if the truths that you reveal unto us conflict with the desires of our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would conform our will to yours, that you would enable us, by the power of your Spirit, to say with Christ, not my will, but thine be done. We pray, O Lord, in so doing that you would manifest your glory, not only in this church, but especially and even more so in our lives, whether corporately or individually. We pray that you would grant us this request for the sake of your glory and for our edification. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul has, uh, in words that are perhaps... Uh, quite uh, memorable to us as they come to us from his epistle to the Romans, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Here the Apostle Paul warns the church, but not only warns the church, but also calls the church Uh, And as he calls us and as he warns us, he says, don't be pressed into the mold of the world. In other words, don't allow the world to impress its beliefs, its desires, its ways upon you. This is something I believe that is perhaps an urgent uh, need for the church in every age, but especially even in our own age. I think that what we are unaware of is we're unaware of the different ways in which the world presses in upon us. I was once uh, made aware of a cartoon uh, 
where it shows one fish swimming by two other fish. And as the fish swims by, he says to his two companion fish, Hey boys, how's the water? And uh, then the other two fish say, What in the world is water? In other words, we're often unaware of our very own environment. We're unaware of the ways in which the world is shaping our thought, uh, shaping the way that we act, shaping the very desires that we have. In one interview that Steve Jobs uh, once made, uh, as he was, you know, the head of Apple at the time, and he was designing computers and, and phones, as they said, aren't you concerned that your products uh, may not be what the customer wants? Because he seemed not to care about market interests, but rather he only wanted to design the products that he thought were necessary. And he said, the customer doesn't know what they want until I tell them what they want. And I think that that one little revelation lets us know that the world is continually trying to shape us and shape our desires and shape the way that we live. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, are we going to allow the world to press press us into its mold? I think one of the ways in which the world has certainly tried to impress its mold and its, its ways upon us is by telling us that self-control is not something that we human beings can exercise. And in fact, some have even gone so far as to say that self-control is scientifically impossible on a number of levels. A number of years ago, there was a young man who was driving a car, and he had several friends riding with him, and he was drunk, and as a result, he had a car accident, and his friends in the vehicle were killed, but he was unharmed. And so the authorities sought to punish him in accordance with the negligent crimes that he had committed. And his lawyers stunningly successfully argued that this young man was not responsible because he was subject to affluenza. What is affluenza? Affluenza is the malady... So they argued that he was so affluent, he was so wealthy, that he simply could not conceive of the consequences of right and wrong. So long story short, he wasn't responsible for his actions. He did not have to exercise any kind of self-control whatsoever because he was too affluent. He was too wealthy. How many uh, people in all quarters of culture tell young people abstinence from sexual relations is not something that is feasible, so you should simply try to ensure that you engage in sexual activity safely because the idea of self-control or abstinence waiting until you are married is something that is essentially scientifically impossible. These are the different ways, or at least some of them, in which the world tries to tell us self-control is not possible. And yet here comes the Apostle Paul who says the exact opposite. Not only is self-control possible, but it is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if the Spirit of Christ indwells us, then that means that we are capable of self-control 
controlling our sinful desires, saying no to the sinful things that we desire, saying no perhaps even to things that are in and of themselves good, but may not be what the Lord wants us to have. So the, the, the scriptures tell us that we can control our desires. Why? Because it is a fruit of the Spirit. So what we want to do as we give thought to self-control this morning is first is we want to delve deeper into why it is that the world believes that self-control is not really possible. And then what we want to do is we want to look at uh, what the Apostle Paul has to say about self-control and as to how we can be under the control of the Spirit and thereby exercise control over our desires uh, in this life. So let's first give thought to what the world has to say about self-control. And here is where I want us to do a little bit of history so that we can understand the place where we presently are. Uh, If you were reading a book prior to the 19th century, so if we were to back up the clock and we were to go back to before the 1800s, you would find two different terms, two different terms to describe good feelings and bad feelings. And those two terms are the affections and passions. Okay, you would find two terms, affections and passions. Affections are those types of movements of the soul. Think of them as feelings, as a response that elicits a feeling in you, except theologians and even philosophers would say that those feelings were under your rational control. And they characterized and described these feelings as affections. Okay? An affection is not necessarily something that, is, uh, that, that instills, for example, a fondness in you or a love for something. It's just something that elicits a positive response in you. So your affections are those things that uh, are positive feelings within you. And they're under the control of your reason, under the control of your will. In other words, they are self-controlled. By contrast, passions, on the other hand, were negative feelings and responses, uh, and how you might respond if you exercised a lack of self-control. Affections are positive feelings. Passions are negative feelings. Okay, so this is all prior to the 19th century. But in the middle of the 19th century, this vocabulary changed. And there was a new term that was introduced into our culture, especially here in the West. It was the word emotion. Prior to the 19th century, the word emotion does not exist. An emotion, according to its original understanding and definition, was a morally disengaged, bodily, non-rational, involuntary response to a circumstance or situation. In other words, it's a feeling response 
that is not under the control of your reason. It's not under the control of your reason. And in fact, what had happened prior to the 19th century is that classic theology had argued that appetites, passions, and affections were all movements of our will, all movements of our desire, and that the affections, those things that elicited positive feelings with us, were under our control. But in very short order, people began to set aside all of these categories, and they introduced the idea of the emotions. Who was it that was largely responsible for this? Darwin. Charles Darwin introduces the idea of the emotions. He says this, quote, Our descent then is the origin of our evil passions. The devil under the form of baboon is our grandfather. This is what he's saying, and this is what this quotation of his means. is He says, don't attribute evil or good to your emotions. Don't attribute evil or good to your emotions. They're not under your control. The reason they are not under your control is because you have descended from the monkeys. You have descended from a baboon. And just as we would no more hold a baboon accountable for its emotional responses because they're not under the control of reason, because the baboon has no reason of which to speak, because you have descended from the animals, you have no reason to think that you are in any more control of your emotional responses. So the bottom line is, is that all of the feelings that we have, whether good or bad, are not under our self-control, but rather they're just simply involuntary responses to the circumstances that are around us. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but uh, on occasion, uh, my, my, my allergies will go nuts. I wake up in the morning, and I think everything's fine. I don't know, and I've never been able to figure out what time of year or when it happens, as to why it would happen, but I'll be up in my office, and, I, and I, oh, I'm always trying to be quiet, because I get up early in the morning, and I go up to my palatial closet office. I can touch both sides of my office with my hands, because I'm in a six-foot-wide closet. And my wife says, you should be grateful for your closet. A lot of people don't have offices. I, okay, so I try to be thankful. I say, thank you, Lord, for my palatial closet. And as I'm sitting there working, all of a sudden, I sneeze. It's like, oh, I don't know what that was. And then I sneeze again. And then before you know it, I've sneezed maybe 15 to 20 times, and I can't figure out why. And I get worried that I'm going to wake everybody up in the house with all of my sneezing, even though I've got the door shut. And then it finally subsides. And then I come downstairs and, and, and I'll be getting ready to go on my run or I'll be getting dressed and I'll start sneezing again. And my wife will say, stop it. <laughs> and what do I respond to her? I respond with a slight tone of indignance, uh, you know, indignity saying, 
I can't help it. It's not within my control. It's an involuntary action on my part. You know, I'll try plugging my nose. I will try all sorts of different things, and I still sneeze. It's an involuntary reaction. I think that's the way most people would like to characterize our emotions. It's involuntary. I'm angry, but I can't control it. I punched that man, but it wasn't because I was in control. It's just because that's just the way that I responded. Uh, You know, we think perhaps sometimes it's beyond our control. It's like a sneeze. It's an involuntary thing beyond my ability to control it. So we should recognize, I think, the influence not just because of Darwin, but because of the the broader uh, culture around us, has tried to tell us, you need not try to control yourself. Relax. It's fine. It's involuntary. And especially we should take note of this, say, with how our culture regularly inundates us with advertisements And messages saying, you need to purchase this now. You need to have this now. It begins to whittle away at our ability to control ourselves. And yet, what does the Word of God say? The Word of God tells us that we are made in the image of God. God, of course, exercises self-control. Given that we're made in the image of God, it makes sense, therefore, that we can exercise self-control over our desires, over our feelings. What does the Ten Commandments say in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the last commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice what happens is that our eyes can roam And look all around us. And we can behold our neighbor's house, spouse, possessions. And yet, self-control lies at the heart of not sinfully desiring all of the things that we see around us. The larger catechism, question 147, says, What are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? It says the duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor, and listen carefully, as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. What they're saying here, and notice they don't use the word emotion, didn't exist in the 17th century, but they said all of our motions and affections. In other words, everything that we feel towards our neighbor would tend towards the good will of towards our neighbor, not sinfully desiring what he has, but rather feeling within our hearts that type of affection that would be positive towards him, wanting to advance his state, not to take from him. Think of the different examples in the Bible 
where people failed to exercise control over their desires, over their motions, if you will, over their feelings. King David looked out from his rooftop and he saw his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. He lacked self-control and he let his passions run loose. Rather than walk back into his royal residence and turn away, he summoned Bathsheba, and we know that it all went downhill from there. When Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, he gave in to his sinful desire, lacking self-control. He did not tend his inward motions and affections, touching his neighbor, as the catechism says. And rather than tell his wife Jezebel when she says, I will get that vineyard for you, He should have said, no, I have to control my desires. I need to be content with what the Lord has given me. He let Jezebel arrange for Naboth's murder. We also know, of course, how a lack of self-control brought about disciplinary consequences against Moses in the wilderness. God instructed Moses to assemble the gathered people before uh, the presence of God so that God could give them water. And Moses was told very clearly by God, speak to the rock, speak to it. And yet what happened? Moses was unable to control his feelings, his anger. Numbers 20 verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses struck the rock. He was angry. He lacked self-control. And so God's discipline, note it is his discipline. It was not his wrath. It was his discipline. He forbade Moses from entering into the promised land. Whether the sinful lack of self-control before Darwin or after his futile attempts to try to excuse our sin, to say that we don't have the ability for self-control, we should recognize that God calls us to self-control. He's given us the ability. We have not descended from the baboons, but rather we have been created in his image. More so than created in his image, we have been redeemed and bear the righteous and holy image of Jesus Christ. So this brings us to our second and final point, which is, what does Paul have to say about self-control? Well, as I said, we have to recognize that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It therefore means that we as Christians have the ability, by the giving of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to exercise self-control. And notice how Paul explicitly sets this fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the negative passions. Remember, we discussed this. The passions are those sinful feelings, those sinful desires that we often have. He sets self-control against sexual immorality. He sets self-control against sensuality. He sets self-control against jealousy. 
he sets self-control against fits of anger. And what's interesting is if you have an ESV Bible, a, a, a translation, the ESV translation, the English Standard Version, what's interesting, and I found this, is that it never uses the word emotion. Never uses the word emotion. But quite regularly, it uses the word passion or passions in a negative sense. And in fact, in the New Testament, there are some 15 negative references to the passions. Paul says, for example, in Romans 16, 12, let therefore sin not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When the scriptures forbid us and tell us not to be controlled by our passions, it's another way of saying, don't lack self-control. Exercise self-control. Subdue those sinful desires that you have. Subdue those sinful feelings that you have. When Paul says put to death, he means don't give them life. One of my favorite quotes from John Owen is, be killing sin, otherwise sin will be killing you. And how true it is. When the Spirit regenerates us, the Holy Spirit enables us to exercise self-control so that we're not tossed about by our sinful feelings as if we somehow react involuntarily to sensory input as if it were some sort of chemical reaction, like a bodily function, like a sneeze that happens involuntarily or like an animal that doesn't have rational or a voluntary capacity, let alone a regenerate heart, to the ability to discern good from evil, right from wrong, love from anger. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 5.24, which we read earlier, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So beloved in Christ, again, as I've said throughout this series, controlling ourselves is not a matter of simply trying harder. It's not a matter of simple resolve on our part where we just grit our teeth. But rather, the only one that can enable us to turn away from our sinful passions is Jesus Christ through the gospel, by the grace that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. We have to feed, as Paul would say, our inner man. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that we have been raised according to our inner man. Well, we have to feed our inner man. We have to set our sight upon that which is good and pure, namely Jesus Christ. We have to cry out to Christ for strength, for resolve. Because if we do not seize control of our passions, by the power of the Spirit of God, our passions will seize control of us. 
But at the same time, we have to recall that self-control, I think, is not ultimately about us controlling ourselves, but rather it's about us ceding control of our lives to Christ. What has Paul said earlier in Galatians, Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this is, I think, what self-control ultimately is. It's not in trying to control ourselves, but it's rather turning ourselves over to Christ saying, you, O Lord, have to control me. You, O Lord, have to feed my desires. You, O Lord, have to shape my, my wants. You, O oh Lord, have to shape me and mold me into your image so that I would no longer entertain those sinful thoughts or desires, let alone react in negative and in sinful ways. Beyond drawing near to Christ, how is it that we can gain control over our sinful passions and emotions? Well, I think that we can perhaps give an illustration here or two. How is it that a cowboy can ensure that his horse doesn't break loose and take off in the wrong direction? How is it that an engineer can ensure that a hydroelectric plant can generate energy? Well, the cowboy has to ensure that the bridle is firmly strapped onto the horse so that he can point the horse in the proper direction. The engineer has to ensure that the hydroelectric plant is seated properly in, in respect to whatever water source that is there so that he can channel or she can channel the water to the plant so that it generates energy. Apart from the bridle, the horse is going to break loose. Apart from a properly channeled water, the plant will never generate electricity. And so we have to, if you will, situate ourselves towards the life-flowing channel of the Word of God to ensure that this life-flowing Word flows into us sufficiently enough so that it generates holiness within us, if you will. We have to be thoroughly restrained, having the bridle of the law, if you will, fixed within our mouths so that Christ through the Spirit can lead us in the right direction. I think the law of God enables us to position ourselves so that we're properly aligned with Christ, so that his sanctifying grace flows within us to generate the electricity of holiness, if you allow me to mix my metaphors. And when we sufficiently immerse ourselves in God's word and draw near to Christ, I believe that our triune God will change our hearts and our desires. Rather than desire the sinful things that produce in us uncontrollable emotional reactions, there will be something greater to draw our desires, our love for God in Christ through the Spirit. Because I can promise you this, there are going to be many circumstances in your life where you will have the opportunity to tell yourself, respond calmly, be patient, speak 
carefully chosen words, you will have opportunity to do that. And I suspect and pray that that will be as a result of the Spirit of God working within you because you've been feeding your inner man through the Word of God. But I also know that there will always be those times in our lives where you will not have time to think, but you will simply respond with a knee-jerk reaction. And the only way that that knee-jerk reaction will be holy will be one shaped by Christ, is if you are completely immersed in the gospel of Christ. Because that spur of the moment, immediate response that you you give is going to be a quick barometer. It's going to be a quick indicator as to where does your heart lie. Will you respond in anger and in vulgarity? That's going to let you know you're insufficiently immersed in the gospel of Christ. If you respond with patience or you bite your tongue and you also curb your thought, that's going to be the indicator that you are sufficiently immersed in the gospel of Christ. It's only Christ that will shape us in those ways so that whether we have time to think or whether it's an immediate reaction, it will always be a godly reaction. Beloved in Christ, we've been redeemed from our sinful ways. It's through Christ pouring out the Spirit that we've been given the fruit of self-control in addition to all of the other fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Never think that godliness is outside of your control. Never think that your sin is greater than the power of the Spirit dwelling within you. And in the light of this truth, in the strength of the gospel of Christ, in faith looking to Christ for your salvation and sanctification, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the end, I think self-control is about giving Christ control so that he can shape and conform your will and your desires to his. When we surrender our desires to him, we will exercise self-control in the face of sinful temptations and desires, no matter how strong they will be, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we give thanks that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that you have enabled us by your grace and through Christ to exercise self-control. Oh, Father, sometimes anger wells up within us. Sometimes, oh Lord, because of the continual deluge of advertising and things that we see in the world around us, We desire sinfully things that we should not desire. We want more instead of being content with what you have given us. O Lord, temper our desires. Grant unto us the ability to say no to sin, to turn away from anger, to turn away from lust, to turn away from covetousness, O Lord. 
We know that we are incapable of these things in and of ourselves, and that only by Christ through your Spirit can we exercise self-control. We pray, O Lord, that by your grace you would enable us to crucify our sinful passions and desires and put them to death, and that we would rest in the power of Christ. For you have told us, Lord Jesus, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. O Lord, this is only true if we rest in you. Grant us this rest, we pray, that our desires would be conformed unto your will and that we would bring you glory through all of our words, thoughts, and deeds. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.